0: Good morning. So, Psalm 51, I did not pick this passage. I, didn't be, I was not like, let's talk about sin this morning. Um, but this was a passage that was in the lectionary. And I'm like, okay, we're going to go for this. And so, come with me. It will probably, like all of us, be imperfect, but we're going to try this anyway. Um, Psalm 51, the traditional backstory behind Psalm 51 is it was written by David after the prophet Nathan had called the king of Israel out for a particularly heinous episode. You can find the story in 2 Samuel 11 through 12, but I'll go ahead and give you the Cliff Notes version of it right now. David was, one, was on his roof, and he saw a married woman named Bathsheba bathing on her roof, as one does. Uh, David decided that he wanted this woman and ordered that she would be brought to his palace. Now, it's important to note in this story that Bathsheba did not have any say in this circumstance whatsoever. David was the king, Bathsheba was a woman in a society that said that whatever the king wants, the king will get. And so David brought Bathsheba up to his palace. He slept with her and got her pregnant. This was a problem for David because it would have caused a national scandal. So David hatches a scheme that comes out of a Well, it's sort of like a plot line from a really messed up sitcom. He decides that he's going to bring Uriah home from the war, get Uriah drunk, and hope that Uriah will go home and sleep with his wife and that the husband will be none the wiser about the transgression that took place. However, Uriah is far too noble of a person, even massively inebriated, to go home and sleep with his wife. And so he decides that since his men, his fellow soldiers, are sleeping in tents, that he will sleep by the king's gate. So David's plan is foiled. So David has to hatch another scheme. He gets together with his general and decides that they will put Uriah on the front lines of the war and that they will draw all the rest of the troops back, effectively killing Uriah by the other army. And that's what happens. And Uriah is killed for the wrong that David committed. Nathan calls David out for this great transgression. And David finally has to recognize the error of his ways and must reckon with the massive way in which he had sinned. And so, With that in mind, like I said, today we're going to talk about sin, which I know is such a fun subject for everybody, but that's what we're going to do. And sin is a very tricky topic for us to tackle, and there are a lot of reasons why. And there's one way in particular that I can think of, and I'm reminded of a story, where my wife EA and I went to Las Vegas. And yes, I know we're talking about sin, and I just said Las Vegas. This is not going to be quite as juicy as you think it's going to be. (laughs) EA and I had just uh, camped and hiked the Grand Canyon, And Vegas is a very overwhelming city as it is, but when you are in the wilderness for four days and then suddenly find yourself in the middle of Sin City, it can be a really ridiculously overwhelming experience. Uh, We walked in and out of the massive hotels and casinos. The night sky, which the night before was filled with the most beautiful and majestic stars I had ever seen, were now filled with neon and spotlights and changing advertisements for all sorts of different things. We heard conversations buzzing on the sidewalk and out of the casinos. Music blared from every single direction. Periodically, we would always hear a chorus of, woo, as a party bus passed by us on the strip. We saw live lines next to slot machines. We saw recreations of the canals in Venice. Uh, We walked through marble palaces. We trudged over uh, littered uh, pamphlets for local prostitutes. It was a lot to take in. Uh, it was a ridiculous amount to take in, especially after being in the majest- majesty of the Grand Canyon. So we were walking over to the Bellagio to see the fountain show. You may remember it from the movie Ocean's Eleven. Uh, I was going to pretend like I had just you know, stolen money from multiple casinos and nodded each other coolly and stuff like that. But uh, as we were walking the crosswalk, I heard shouting at the other end. And as we went across this street teeming with pedestrians, we realized that it was not just a, we thought it was a fight, but it turned out it was just one person causing all the ruckus. He had a headset on and he had a small speaker by his side and in his right hand, he was clutching a Bible. It was a street preacher. And he was shouting about sin to every single person that passed him. He yelled about the dangers of sex and drinking and gambling. He screamed about avoiding the fiery judgment of hell he bellowed that we were all sinners, worthless, and in need of rescue. And despite all the noise and the chaos that he was causing, he might as well have been screaming at the wind because all of it did not seem to connect with anyone at all. Some gawked at him awkwardly. Some tried to stifle Snickers. And others looked uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. Now part of me fantasized about getting up there with him and like preaching a counter sermon about God's grace in a broken world. Sort of like a homiletical rap battle. Um, Because when people look at me, rap battle's one of the first things they think. Um, But mainly I was just sad because this guy was using the Bible to bludgeon people. And for many he was affirming their stereotypical view that the Christian faith was just a bunch of angry people screaming about sin. That street preacher is one of the reasons why we often tiptoe around this topic. We don't want to come off as that angry person shouting. There are men and women and children who have had the idea drilled into their head that they are dirty, rotten, worthless individuals. I have heard growing up many a preacher say that God cannot look at us for our sin. And the only reason that God can stand the sight of us Is because of Jesus. That message is damaging. To hear that is damaging. It is not the good news that the gospel is supposed to be, because we are all made in the image of God. And Jesus himself says that he came to this earth out of God's great love for the world. Yet, sometimes we overcorrect, go to the opposite extreme, and try our best to ignore the subject of sin. Sin makes us uncomfortable. We have an, a natural inclination to want to believe that we are good people, and sin runs counter to that narrative. We do not like for negative thinking in our minds, and so I understand the impulse to sweep the talk of sin under the rug, but here's the problem. We sin. The ancient word for sin, and I apologize because my pronunciation probably won't be correct on this, is chata, which means to miss a mark or to go wrong. This happens to you and I every single day. I miss the mark all the time. I can provide many eyewitnesses for it. And I imagine that you do the same. We do things whether intentionally or unintentionally in which we go wrong. Sometimes we make bad choices and sometimes we don't do things that are technically bad. But we sit on the sidelines when the opportunity to do good arises. Either way, we are missing the mark. And the mark that God sets out for us is that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And when we miss that mark, it sets things askew in our world. It hurts our relationship with the people around us. It hurts our relationship within ourselves. It hurts our relationship with God, our Creator. And so to ignore the topic of sin helps no one because it is a reality in which, with which all of us must grapple. The psalmist who wrote today's passage wrestled with the sin in his life. I told you the backstory involving David and Bathsheba and Uriah because I wanted you to know that behind this apology there was a world of hurt. But now I want you to forget about it. I want you to forget about that backstory. And the reason why is because when we consider our own shortcomings, we often compare ourselves to others. We are constantly looking and comparing ourselves to the successes and the failures of other people. And so it would be very easy for us to look at Psalm 51 and be like, I didn't kill a guy, so this does not apply to me. Um, But the good news is if you did kill a guy, it still does apply to you. Um, And so I want you to forget the backstory because all of us have missed the mark. And thus this psalm is something that can speak to us where we are today. Now, I have heard Psalm 51 my whole entire life, uh, and I am not sure that I love this passage. I don't love it like I love the Sermon on the Mount or the parable of the prodigal son or some of the more encouraging passages that we see in scripture, but I need Psalm 51. I need its reminder that I have missed the mark. And so, because of that, I do not want you to listen to the Psalm from a distance. I want you to put yourself in the Psalmist's shoes I want you to wear the words like a coat and be here now. The Psalms, as some of you may know, were often used in congregations and were said aloud by the group as a whole. It wasn't used just for personal devotion. And the reason why they did this is it took something that was very particular and made it universal. And so we are not going to recite the whole entire Psalm, but I would like for us to do just verse 1 together. If you'll get out your pew Bibles, it's on page 520. But Psalm 51, verse 1, and just verse 1. Some people went to verse 2 in the first service, and it was really awkward for all of us. So we're going to do just first one together. 5.20 in your pew Bible. And I just realized that in the first service, I said that I needed to, like, have a joke or a story or something that happens while you're going to this to sort of fill the time, as y'all ch- and I didn't come up with one, and so I apologize. Um, It would have been a great joke or story. I can promise you that. Um, All right, 520. This is Psalm 51.1, and let's read this together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Thank you. The word we translate as transgressions comes from the Hebrew word pashah which I know sounds like pshaw, but Hebrew word pshaw, and this word means to revolt or rebel. And that word has a very different connotation to me than transgression. Transgression is very formal. It sounds very legal to me. To rebel or revolt against something sounds a lot more personal and a lot more dramatic. There is a sense of violent upheaval in the idea of revolt. And With David's story, it's very easy for us to see what he did as a revolt against God. He used his power over someone else. He tried to cover it up. He killed a man. It's very easy to be revolted by what David did in that story. But what about the ways in which we miss the mark every single day? Is talking unkind towards someone a revolt against God? Is sitting by passively While we allow societal systems to dehumanize other, a revolt against God. Scripture would tell us that yes, it is. It is a revolt against the kind of world that God desires. And God desires a world in which we see what Jesus demonstrated in his ministry. We see a world where people are lifted up. We see a world where goodness reigns and justice flows down like a mighty river. This is the world that God desires, and any time we do anything that runs counter to that, we are in revolt against it. Even our comparatively minor sins end up being death by a thousand cuts. Now, I remind you of this not to make us feel bad or worthless, but we have to see ourselves with clear eyes. Because our calling is to love God and to love our neighbor, and thus we cannot turn a blind eye to the times when we miss that mark. That's why we need prayers like Psalm 51 in our lives. Now, if I'm going to be honest, there are aspects of this Psalm that bother me. When the psalmist declares that his sin has been committed against God and God alone, it rings hollow. I told you to forget about David. I'm gonna go back on that just a second. If you look at what happened to David, David's sin was not against God and God alone. David sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his general that was brought into this conspiracy to murder him. He sinned against the soldiers who were out there who pulled back so Uriah could be killed. He sinned against his people. David sinned against so many people more than God. I realize that was a soapbox moment for me, but fairness is kind of something I have a big deal about. It bothers me when he says, I sinned against you and you alone. And perhaps the psalmist is saying that he sees the hurt from his actions flow back to the God who created all of the people who were hurt, but it still bothers me. Don't get me wrong, our sin hurts God, hurts God incredibly, and it breaks God's heart because of the pain that causes for everyone. Yet it is important that we do not let our repentance simply be a talk between us and God and leave 7 billion other people who are affected out of the conversation. As Martin Luther King Jr. once put it, we are caught up in an inescapable web of mutuality. So what I do reverberates. It reverberates to God, to my neighbor, and to the rest of the world. And so if I were to adapt verse 4 of this psalm, And I realize that when people are gonna be like, what did Chris talk about this morning? He rewrote part of the Bible. That's not what I'm going for. But if I were to make this reflect more honestly what's going on in my life, I would probably say something like this. Instead of God against you, you you alone I've sinned, I would say, God against you have I sinned. Against my wife, against my sons against my parents and my siblings, against my family and friends, against random acquaintances, strangers, the poor and vulnerable, the marginalized, those who follow you and those who do not believe against your good creation and more than my soul can bear. Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Because that's the truth. When I do not follow God with my entire being, it hurts me and it hurts those around me. And that's a hard thing to say. I don't think we like to think about that. But you and I have to be honest. We look out on the world and we see so much pain and hurt and heartbreak. And I know each and every single one of us want to do everything that we can to turn that tide. And so we have to be honest with ourselves and look at ourselves with clear eyes and realize that we bring hurt into this world. And we have to turn from it. So the question becomes, what do we do? Because none of us are perfect and all of us miss the mark every single day. Well, the good news is that this psalm is not just the raw confession of one person's capacity for evil. This psalm is also about the marvelous reality that is God's grace. Because here's the good news. Our missing of the mark is not the final word. We do not have to be mired in a never-ending revolt against what God desires for this place. The psalmist proclaims, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He doesn't say I may be clean. He says I will be clean. And that is not the word of someone who thinks that God sees him as a poor, worthless, wretched individual. That is the word of somebody who hopes in, who trusts in, who believes with all their heart in God's amazing grace. The one who has courage to face the ways in which they have messed up, the ways in which they have missed the mark, can also be blessed with the comfort of knowing that God will give them a clean heart. And that's where our passage today ends. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. The Hebrew word for create is barah. In the Old Testament, God is the only subject that is ever used in connection with this word. I cannot brawl something. You cannot borrow something. Only God can create a clean heart. So when we mess up, we do not have to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. God is with us. For some of you, that is good news. For others of you, that might be difficult to hear because we bristle at the idea that we need help. But the thing is our missing of the mark is so prevalent that like someone who does a 12-step program, we have to admit that we are powerless to conjure up a clean heart on our own. We need God to work in us. Every week at communion, we hold up the cup and we talk about the fact that Jesus says, this is the new covenant that is in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. In Romans 5.8, Paul writes that God proves God's love for us in this, that while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. As Christians... We believe that through Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, we have an opportunity for grace. That despite the fact that we miss the mark, that God can put in us a clean heart. Because the thing is, is despite what that street preacher would tell you, God has always been in the work of restoration and redemption. God has always been in the work of making things right in this world. Restoration brings me back to that street preacher. And it brings me to one other thing that actually rankles me about this psalm. Uh, Earlier on, the psalmist remarks that he was sinful from birth. Surely I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me, which is a very odd thing to say, but it's what he says. And as I read commentaries throughout the week, as commentaries often do, they want to theologize it. They want to take this and say, well, As you can see, he is uh, reestablishing the doctrine of original sin. And this is why we need to baptize infants, because inherent evil is with us from the moment we come into this world. Because all theologians talk like that. Um, And I read that, and it frustrates me, because the Psalms are the brokenhearted song of people who are struggling with their humanity. I don't think the psalmist was being like, I am going to now make a statement about the human condition. He was saying, I have done such a horrible and terrible thing and I am plunging the depths of my soul and the only thing I can think of is I must have been bad, evil from the beginning to have done something this terrible. But I don't think he's saying that each and every single one of us is just shattered from the moment we step on this earth. Because later on, after he asked God to give him a clean heart, he uses language like, restore me, sustain me. These imply a recovery of goodness. Wretchedness may be a state that we find ourselves in, but it is not our intended default. God wants to restore us to the good intended for creation. I frequently ask myself uh, why I am still on Twitter because every day it's like watching a car crash into a dumpster fire over and over and over again. Um, But every so often, something comes along my way that reminds me that there's actually some goodness on the internet occasionally. Uh, Recently on Twitter, I saw a uh, link to a profile in the New Yorker about a singer-songwriter by the name of Julian Baker. Julian Baker is an indie rock artist. Uh, She hails from Memphis, and uh, she often wrestles with her faith in her music. Much of the article centered on how she struggled with the feeling that was taught to her by the churches she grew up in, that she was fundamentally flawed, flawed, that she was broken beyond repair. And it was kind of discouraging to read that, especially as I was thinking about this topic. But the article ended on a note that grabbed my attention. Julian Baker had been going to a church where a pastor recently commented that she does not believe that God created us to be garbage. God was not shouting from a street corner that Julian or you or I were a broken piece of filth. Instead, the author concluded, for a long time, Julian believed that she was born depraved and had to learn how to be good. Now she's wondering what it would be like to believe, to really believe that she was born beautiful, that everyone was, and we've been beaten down by a society that teaches selfishness and that we have to and what we have to do is try to unlearn it, note by note. That is what I wish I had preached when I encountered that street preacher in Las Vegas. The message is not that you are born broken. The message is that you were born into a world where we break each other and we break ourselves. And that's a subtle difference, but I think it's a meaningful one. We have to recognize the ways in which we hurt each other and ourselves, or we're just perpetuating the pain that exists in this world. This world where we break each other. And God wants something better for that. God wants to help you and I unlearn the ways in which we hurt one another. God wants to help us reclaim the beauty with which we were born. Through Jesus, we can see what it means to be truly and fully and wholly human. And so we have an opportunity through Jesus for a clean heart. In God's great mercy, we are told that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. Our shortcomings are missing of the mark. And so we have to have clear eyes to see the ways in which we miss that mark. And we can trust that the God who loves us more than we could ever imagine will create in us a clean heart so that we can be who God intended us to be all along. Amen.